I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. We began last week looking at this prayer, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus, and we established that the prayer could be divided into three sections. The first section we considered last week concerned Jesus' prayer for himself, that is verses 1 through 5. The second section covers his prayer for his disciples, verses 6 through 19, and the third section covers his prayers for all believers, verses 20 to 26. And with this outline, we would have been considering today Jesus' prayer for his disciples. But in view of the various statements that he makes concerning these disciples as he prays for them, I believe it would be useful for us to devote our study this morning to the various descriptions he gives of these disciples. It's most assuring to note how he characterizes them as he intercedes for them, as he prays for them, and all the descriptions he gives of them in verses 1 through 10. Indeed, all the petitions he makes to the Father, point to his enormously deep love and concern for them as his very own. And most instructive, I would say, are the ways in which he describes them, because in these descriptions, we're given a picture, a portrait of every true believer, of what it means to be saved. And if you're saved this morning, then these statements of our Lord Jesus are very much true of you. If we're asking the question, what does a true believer in Jesus Christ looks like? Then we have in this high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus, a composite, a portrait of the true believer. And the question is, what do we learn about true believers in Christ? What do we learn about those for whom Jesus prays? First of all, there are those to whom he has given eternal life. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be Christian? It is to be in receipt from God eternal life. Verse 2, there we learn that the Father has given believers to Christ. He says there, verse 2, you have given him authority, you have given the Son of Man authority 
over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Here it is. He gives eternal life to those who are saved. He gives them eternal life. The term eternal life occurs no less than 50 times in the New Testament. And 17 of those occurrences are found in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is by and large about this matter of eternal life. But of course, the question is, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? And to begin with, eternal life is not simply endless existence. Eternal life is not necessarily existing forever. Why can we say that? Because every single human being, in fact, let me personalize it, every single one of us this morning is going to continue to live throughout eternity. The truth is we never go out of existence. For some, it will be an eternity of bliss. For others, it will be, sad to say, an eternity of woe, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as our Lord Jesus puts it. And we know that also, we know that eternal life is not necessarily unending existence because whether saved or lost, as we said, everyone will live throughout eternity. And the term, furthermore, the term eternal life never is applied to the lost. Never is eternal life, that term, applied to unsaved people. So that eternal life, we could say, connotes not merely quantity of life, but quality of life. And as a quality of life, eternal life is, we could say, the life of the age to come. In fact, the words in the Greek would be literally translated roughly, life of the age with the understanding, life of the age to come. As a quality of life, eternal life is the life of the age to come. It is therefore the life of God and the life of heaven of which we partake, not just when we die, but right here and now, the moment we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here, Lord Jesus, in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall never come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. As indicated by our Lord in verse 3, eternal life essentially consists in knowing the true and living God and him, Jesus Christ. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him in a saving, redeeming way, knowing him as the one who forgives us of our sins. It's not just an intellectual apprehension of him. It's not simply an intellectual apprehension, but intimacy of acquaintance with him through the forgiveness of sins. In short, eternal life is, we could say, a living, vital relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the one and only way to God, John 14 and verse 6. Remember our Lord Jesus used the concept of life right there in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. As such, eternal life is alluded to in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, as that which is truly life. 
Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 10 and verse 10 as abundant life. That is to say, life to the fullest, or we would say in contemporary terms, life to the max. In fact, he portrays it in John chapter 4 verse 14 as life that is unendingly satisfying. Remember his conversation with the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, in John chapter 4 verse 14, when she was incredulous at the thought of his providing water. She says, the well is deep. You have nothing to draw that water. Jesus responded as follows. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The, and then he explains, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Eternal life, then, is a quality of life. It is the life of God. It is the life of heaven in the regenerated soul. And what all of this means is that as a quality of life, eternal life, which is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we learn that from 1 John 5 verse 20, because 1 John 5 verse 20 says of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the true God and life eternal. Eternal life, which is embodied in Jesus Christ, is the life of God imparted to the soul according to 1 John 1 and verse 2. And as the life of God in us, it is therefore life that is marked, it is necessarily marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17. As life to the fullest, eternal life affords us joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, a joy which can be experienced in the present and which most certainly will come to its fullest expression at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ on throughout eternity. And so as William Barclay puts it, he says this, to possess eternal life, to enter into eternal life, is to experience here and now something of the splendor and the majesty and the joy and the peace and the holiness which are characteristic of the life of God. Eternal life is not something we inherit when we die. We do not enter into eternal life when we die. Right in the here and now. And the question is, do you have eternal life? Do you have in your soul life eternal? The promise of our Lord Jesus in John chapter 10. Remember at the grave of Lazarus when Mary was troubled. One of the sisters was troubled. And she said, yes, I know, Lord, you will raise him up in the last day. What did our Lord Jesus say? He says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. What was he talking about? He was talking about eternal life as a present reality. And the question to you this morning is, do you have eternal life? Are you in possession of eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior? Let me just say here, based on what the Word of God teaches, every single human being is either dead or alive spiritually. And not until faith in Jesus Christ, not until the mercy and grace of God has been extended to us in Jesus Christ that we come alive, we are quickened by the Spirit of God and imbued and infused with eternal life. Who are those for whom Jesus prays? Number one, 
they are those who have been given eternal life. Secondly, those for whom our Lord Jesus prays have been given to him by his Father. Those for whom our Lord Jesus prays have been given to him by his Father. Look again at verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. In verse 6, he refers to them in a generalized way as, quote, the people whom you have given me out of the world. They are the people whom God has given to Christ out of the world. That's what it means to be saved. If you are saved, what the word of God is saying, you have been given by God to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the glorious promise. Jesus in John 6, 37, he says this, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and one who comes to me I will in no way cast out. Isn't it interesting that the coming is preceded by the giving, suggesting there that if one was not given by God, if God the Father did not give a person to the Son, that person would never come to him because he says later down, no man can come to me except the Father what draws him. The people he's referring to here has in view not just the 12 apostles, but the other 72 disciples, Luke chapter 10, verse 1, because we read there that after the 12 were sent, he sent out 72 others. So the believers in Jesus Christ at that time constituted the 12 apostles plus 72 others, Luke chapter 10, verse 1, as well as the countless others who had come to believe in him and walk with him throughout the course of his ministry. Jesus is saying here, these were the people, at least at that time he was speaking, that the Father had given to him. So here we see the wonderful truth that all who believe on Christ constitute the Father's gift to Christ. In praying to the Father, notice as many as seven times, as many as seven times in this prayer, Jesus cites the fact of their having been given to him by the Father. Look, look with me, verse 2, all whom you have given him Twice in verse 6, the people whom you gave me, you gave them to me. Verse 9, those whom you have given me. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep in your name those which you have given me. Verse 12, I've kept them in your name. Those you have given me. Verse 24, they also whom you have given me. My friends, if you are saved, you can walk away this morning with this truth that you are God's gift to his son. You're God's gift to his son. And in saying that, please remember, as I remind myself, keep in mind, it wasn't because there was something particularly nice or special about us. In fact, there was everything repulsive in us that nauseated him. Indeed, we were filthy, wretched sinners in his sight. We were lost. We were dead in trespasses and sins without hope, without God in the world. But here's what the word of God says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he had for us even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together in Christ. And notice the little proviso Paul puts, just in case, just remember this, by grace you are saved. 
You see, having made us trophies of his saving, redeeming grace, because that's what he did when he saved us. When he saved us, you see, it was a magnificent work he did. In fact, the word he used in the Greek in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for we are his workmanship, that word speaks of a work of art. We are his poema, is the word that is used. We are his poema. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And the idea here is this, that when God saved us, when God redeemed us from the pit of sin and death, what he did in so doing, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 suggests this, he made us trophies of his grace. And what did he do with that trophy? He presented it to the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are saved, beloved, we are God's gift to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could add this as a third feature of those for whom our Lord Jesus prays, and it is this, that those for whom Jesus prays, notice thirdly, there are those who belong to God. There are those who belong to God. Look at verse 6b. Because in praying to the Father, Jesus says this, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Look at verse 9, the last phrase, For they are yours. My friends, here we have the sobering truth that not everyone belongs to God. That's the logical implication. That's the logical deduction. Not everyone belongs to God, but only those to whom God the Father has given to his Son. Only those who are saved belong to God. And Scripture everywhere makes this clear. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says this, He, that is Christ, was in the world. The world was made by him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, watch this, he gave the right to become, watch that word, become, because that word suggests what? They were, they ended up being what they were not. He says, to as many as received him, that is, believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, to become children of God. What that means then, you see, when we go down to brass tacks, when we take this truth to its irreducible minimum, suggested here is that humanity, you know, really is divided into two camps. It's divided between those who are saved, those who are lost, those who belong to God, those who do not belong to God, those who are of the devil, those who are of God. It's not a pleasant thought. It's not popularly taught, but it's the truth of the word of God. Every single human being is in one of these two camps. 1 John 3 verse 10, the apostle draws a clear line of demarcation between the children of God and the children of the devil. Romans chapter 8 verses 7 through 9, the apostle Paul in contrasting those who belong to God from those who do not belong to God says this, verses 7 through 9 of Romans 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, he's writing to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, look at the clincher. Anyone, verse 9, who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. 
And will you notice here in our passage that believers in Christ are jointly owned by the Father and by the Son. They are jointly owned by the Father who chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, such that they are referred to in Titus chapter 1 verse 1 as God's elect and as his people in Acts chapter 18 verse 10. As well, they belong to Christ who alone chose them, who also chose them out of the world. Jesus says that in John 15 verses 16 and 19, you did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you. He says very much the same thing in verse 19 of John 15, such that John chapter 13 verse 1, he refers to them as his very own. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them to the very end, John says. Now in verse 9, Jesus, he specifically says there in verse 9, if you look at verse 9, notice what he specifically says there. He specifically states that it is for the people of God, the people God gave him that he's praying for. It is for those people that he's praying. Listen to him in verse 9. I am praying for them. That is, the people whom you gave to me. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Yes, there is a certain truth known as particular redemption. And the idea of particular redemption is this, that God purposes and determines those who are his. He elects them from the foundation of the world. He saves them. He calls them in time. And he tells us in his word that these were what? Given to the Father. And here he's saying, those whom you have given to me, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, he says. What does he mean here? I'm not praying for the world. He's talking about the rest of humanity. And why is he not praying for them? Because as he implicitly suggests in verse 9, they were not given to him by the Father. Not everyone was given by the Father. By contrast, he's praying for those who were given to him because they are the fathers. They belong to him. They belong to God. Why doesn't he pray for the world? Someone asks. Our Lord Jesus does not pray for the world because implacably hostile to him. John chapter 7 verse 7. And his people, John chapter 15, 18 and 19, as well as 17 verse 14. The world is under the rule of Satan. The world is under the rule of Satan. John chapter 14 verse 30. First John chapter 5 verse 19. Listen to what the apostle John says. We know we are of God, little children, and the whole world lies in the arms of the evil one. Somebody says John is self-righteous. Well, you can't say that. That's what the word of God says. He says, we know we are of God, little children, and the whole world is lying in wickedness. What is John doing there? John is drawing a line in the sand. John is saying that there are but two sets of people in the world, those who belong to God and those who do not. And so he does not pray for the world because the world is implacably hostile toward him, toward his people, and the world is under the rule of God. The devil, yes, he did pray for his enemies on the cross. Remember, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As well, Scripture exhorts us to pray for all men. 
to pray for all men that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. But in terms of praying for the redeemed, the world, listen, the world as an organized system that is hostile to God, that is contrary to God, that is implacably hostile toward him and will not come to him is excluded. That's what the word of God teaches. In the fourth place, those for whom our Lord Jesus prays, and this is what it means to be saved. They have been divinely enlightened. They have been divinely enlightened. They have been savingly illuminated concerning God, concerning who God is. Notice there in verse 6, Jesus says of those whom the Father had given to him out of the world. What does he say of them? I have what? Manifested your name to them. I've manifested your name to them. Down in verse 26, he speaks of his having made known the Father's name to them and of his intention to continue making it known to them. That's enlightenment. What is he talking about? He's talking about the reality of what it means to be saved. When is a person saved, my friends? A person is saved when the eyes have been enlightened, when the mind has been enlightened to see the beauty, the glory, the power of Christ to save in the gospel. Consider what the word of God teaches about sinful fallen humanity and then we come to see the need for enlightenment. You see, under the power of sin, humanity is described in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 as being, this is how the word of God describes them, ignorant and darkened in the understanding. Ignorant and darkened in the understanding. Ephesians 5 verse 8 characterizes their existence as one of darkness. It's interesting to see what Paul says in Ephesians 5 8. He says of the Ephesian Christians, he says, you were once darkness. Notice he did not say you were in the dark. He says you were darkness itself. What is he suggesting there? We were so enmeshed in spiritual blindness and darkness, we took on the features of darkness is what he's saying. And the fact is, one comes to be saved by way of being enlightened concerning the name of God, concerning the name and glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. The name of God speaks of who he is. The name of God speaks of his character. When we see in Scripture reference to the name of God, it has reference to who God is. And the truth, beloved, is this, unsaved men and women do not know, for example, God as Father. Yes, they know him as a terrifying judge. They know him as one to fear and tremble before, but they do not know him as Father. It is only through Christ that we come to know God as Father. It is only through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that men and women, boys and girls can refer to God as Father. You say, how do we know that? You remember the resurrection morning when Mary was clinging to him. He said, listen, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God, suggesting there that through his death and through his resurrection, the way has been opened whereby we can go right to God and by the grace of God call him Daddy, Abba, Father. That's the idea. 
They're blind to the reality of God's holiness. They're blind to the reality of his wrath against sin. They see God, if they do not see him as a God of terror, some people are mistaken to thinking that he's all love, that he's a doting grandfather who doesn't punish and judge sin. And hence, men and women need to have their eyes enlightened, their minds open concerning who God is. That is why the function of the gospel, according to Acts 26, verse 18, is to open the eyes of men and women so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That is why we read in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is hid, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the eyes of men, lest they should see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine of out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is how a person is saved. A person is saved when they have been enlightened as to who God is, as to who Christ is, what God has done in the person and work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are those for whom Jesus prays fifthly? They are those who have been receptive of obedient to the word of God. What does it mean to be saved? Well, we don't obey to be saved. We don't do good works in order to be saved, but this will be true of us if we are saved. It is this, we will be receptive of and obedient to the word of God. Look at verse 6. Jesus says of these people for whom he's praying, he says this, they have kept your word. Verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. The difference between unsaved people, beloved, and those who are saved is this, that those who are saved hear and receive and obey the word of God. That is one of the defining marks of what it means to be saved. Notice at the end of verse 8 and verse 25 what it means to receive the word of God. It means to believe on Christ, that he came from the Father, and that the Father sent him, implying that faith and trust in his redemptive work, in his mission, was to give his life as a sacrifice for sins. And listen, my friend, there is no true reception of the word of God where there is not a proper understanding and appreciation of the person of Christ. To be saved, one must have some understanding of who Jesus is, what he had done. To receive the word of God is to believe in Christ as he is revealed, precisely as he is revealed in scripture, the word of God. The lesson then is this, that one of the marks of those who are truly saved is their openness and obedience to the word of God. The fact that the word of Christ, John 8 verse 37, has a place in them. Does the word of God have a place in you? Have you received the word of God? Do you welcome the word of God in your life? Is your life transformed by the word of God? That's a true mark of what it means to be saved. Receptivity to the word of God, that's a hallmark of true saving faith. Listen to our Lord Jesus in John 8 verse 31. Jesus said this to the Jews who believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, that is to say, if you obey my word, you are truly my disciples. You are truly my disciples. That's why our Lord Jesus could warn in 
Matthew chapter 7, he says, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he what? He that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is your life marked by obedience? We're not talking about perfection, but is there a measure of consistency in your life when it comes to receiving, welcoming the word of God, being transformed by the word of God, obeying the word of God? Because here's the truth. If your life is on a trajectory of constant disobedience to the word of God, of constant dismissal of the word of God, no interest in the things of God, then salvation for you becomes suspect. And then sixthly, those for whom our Lord Jesus prays, they are distinctively those the world hates. Those for whom God prays, those who are saved, are hated by the world. Look at verse 14. The world has hated them. And the question has to be, why is it that the world hates God's people? We look at our culture today, and clearly our culture, in every aspect of our culture, politically and otherwise educational system, every aspect of our culture is inimical toward God, hates God with a passion. The question is, why is that? And Jesus gives the answer. He says, because they are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. First of all, listen. They are not of the world. Notice verse 6. They are not of the world and hence are hated by the world because they were given to Christ out of the world. They're no longer a part of the world. What happens when friends, one person becomes a believer, they used to knock heads together. What happens after that? A parting of ways where there's true faith in Christ. Oftentimes, it leads to a division. Nobody wants to be friends with you anymore. In John 15, verse 19, Jesus says that they were chosen out of the world as such. They are secondly not of the world. They are not of the world in the sense that they no longer belong to the world. And then thirdly, they are not of the world because they do not conform to the world. Why do they not conform to the world? Look at verse 14. They do not conform to the world because, you see, they are committed to the word of God that Christ gave them. They are committed to the word of God. Listen, if you are living according to God's word, you are going to be hated. There's no question about that. If you decided to take your stand, beloved, on the word of God, you're going to live by this book. You're not going to be popular around town. You're not going to be popular among your co-workers. You're not going to be popular in your family. Jesus said that, I've come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Because from now on, a mother-in-law is going to be against her daughter-in-law and so on and so forth. Christ is the great divider. Why? Because there's a clash of value system. And consequently, his people are hated by the world because their values and their mindset are contrary, completely at odds with the values and mindset of the world. That is why the word of God says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, let's hasten as we come to a close. Who are those for whom Christ prays? Who are those who are truly saved? Number one, there are those who have been given eternal life. Eternal life is their characteristic feature. They are in receipt of the life of God. They are in receipt of the life of the age to come. Secondly, there are those who have been given to Christ by his Father. Thirdly, there are those who belong to God. There are those, fourthly, who have been divinely enlightened. 
Fifthly, they are those who are receptive and obedient to the word of God. Sixthly, they are distinctively those whom the world hates. And then seventhly and finally, they are those. Here it comes. They are those in whom Christ and his Father are greatly honored. Look at verse 10. Here's what our Lord Jesus says. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Look at the last clause. And I am glorified in them. And the question is, how is Christ glorified in your life, in my life, as believers in him? How do we bring honor and glory to Christ? John 15, verse 8, here's our Lord Jesus. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Are you bearing fruit? We glorify God. Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We bear fruit, the fruit of good works. Philippians chapter 1 verse 11, Paul's prayer for the Philippian Christians was this, that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Peter is writing to believers in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and he says this, God's purpose for them, he says, you are a chosen Generation, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that you may show forth the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, when we as Christians exhibit the fruit of faith in him, the fruit of love for him, the fruit of obedience to him, and more so as we grow in those graces, we bring glory and honor to God. Are you growing in faith? your faith in him? Are you growing in your love for him? Are you growing in your obedience to him? Those are fruits whereby Christ and his Father are glorified. The question is, is Christ being glorified in your life? By his grace, are you growing in him, manifesting the fruits of righteousness? Is your life pleasing to him? The distinctive marks of those who are saved, as we look through these this morning, the question we need to ask ourselves, are these things true of us? And if not, here's the wonderful news. There is the grace of God. The grace of God to not only save us, but the grace of God to transform us, to make of us what he desires us to be.